This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. We begin tonight's feature with a program that was radio's leading anthology series of high-adventure radio dramas, Escape. The plot tonight involves three men tending a lighthouse on an island off the coast of French Guiana. The rock the lighthouse stands on is dubbed Three Skeleton Key, named after a tragedy when three escaped convicts became shipwrecked on the rock and eventually died of hunger and thirst. The only thing left of them were a heap of bones cleaned off by scavenging birds. I don't want to give away all the plot, so let's give a listen. Escape and Three Skeleton Key. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape! Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to a lonely lighthouse off the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana and a nightmare world of terror and violence. As we bring you again in response to hundreds of requests, three skeleton key... Starring Vincent Price. Picture this place. A gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare black rock, 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. At high tide, just the lighthouse rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. And all about it, the churning water, gray-green scum dappled, warm as soup, and swarming with gigantic bat-like devilfish, great violet schools of Portuguese man-of-war, and yes, sharks, the big ones, the 15-footers. And as if this weren't enough... There was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. A wind that had smelled the slow and frightful death that came one night to this bare black rock. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door. And in you went. And out. Yes, up and up and round and round, past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope, casks of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds and cartons and cans, and up, and up and up, round and round. 
Over the light storeroom was the food storeroom, and over the food storeroom was the bunk room where the three of us slept. And over the bunk room was the living and cooking room, and over the living and cooking room was the light. She was a beauty, big steel and bronze baby with the sun gleaming through the glass walls all about, bouncing, blinding little beams off the big shining reflectors, glittering and refracting through her lenses, the whole gigantic bulk of her balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. She was a sweetheart of a light. And at night, she'd lie there on the stone deck of the gallery with her revolving smoothly and quietly over your head, easing her bright white eye 360 degrees around the horizon. You'd lie there watching to see that the feeders kept working, that everything ran right. And it wouldn't be bad, the other two fellows snoring in their sacks two levels down. You'd smoke your pipe to kill the stink of the wind, and it wouldn't be bad. About those other two, Louis and Auguste. What a pair. Louis, he was head man, was a big fellow from the vast country. Black beard, little hard black eyes, and a pair of arms that I tell you those arms were as big around as my legs. Yes, head man he was, and what word he let go was law. A silent fellow, and although I spent my first two weeks trying to strike up a real conversation... The most I could ever get out of him was... Jean, I took up this profession because I don't like people. They want to talk too much. It's quiet work, light tending. Let's keep it that way. You, you're getting to be as bad as August. I thought maybe for once they send me somebody... That was Louis. When he accused me of becoming like August, I quieted down. Because August was the talkingest man I'd ever met. The talkingest and the ugliest. He was hunchbacked, stood four feet high, had red hair and big blue eyes. It seems he'd been an actor in Paris. Yes, indeed. Played in over 200 different productions, dear boy, at the Grand Guignol. Oh, but it was monstrous horrible, the way we used to scare the audiences. I, I was hated. Yes, yes, they used to throw things and hiss and bare their teeth at me. Finally, it got too bad. I couldn't stand it any longer. I gave up the theater. My nerves, you understand, yes? Gave it up completely. I really did. Couldn't stand it any It all started one morning at 2.30. I was on watch, lying on the cool stone deck, pulling on my pipe, staring out at the blackness, the phosphorescent combers, and the big yellow stars, when out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something show up for a second, something the light had touched, far off. I waited for her to come around again, and when she did, there it was. Master, a big one, about a half mile off and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. You must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason. Dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear. But this one, this sailing vessel, was coming straight on. I went over to the gallery door and yelled, Louis! Louis! Couldn't understand it. I waited for the light to come around again. Ship headed for the reef. Hurry right up. I had the glasses out now. I couldn't.
couldn't read her name, but I could see her quite plainly. All sails set, foam creaming away under her bow, her beautiful lines. A Dutch ship, I guessed her. But why didn't she turn? Every time it passed, our light hit her with the glare of day. Ship? Where? North, northwest. The light will touch her in a moment. Can't they see? Look at her. She just keeps coming on. Yeah, the square heads. What is it? What is it? Watch north, northwest. I know. I know what it is. Huh? What? The Dutchman, the flying Dutchman. We did a play about her once. Oh, what a performance. You ghastly, gallian, hag-ridden, cursed-ribbon, must on... Shut up, will you? She's loving. Yes. Sloppy way to come about. She's derelict, that's it. Derelict? Abandoned. The crew left her for some reason or other. But instead of sinking, she's gone on. Running before every wind. She'll not run long. Not with these reefs to break her up. A beautiful ship. Now, why would men leave a beautiful ship like that? She didn't ram us, although we all expected it. But as we waited for the crash, she luffed again, caught some odd gust, and went about. We watched her the rest of those black hours, heeling and rocking, pushed and pulled by every stray wind, every freak current. Watched her until the dawn came, till the sea turned from black to a pearly gray. And on she came again, heading for us. We all had our glasses trained on her now. August, you can kill the light. Right, Chief? She doesn't look so good by daylight. Think she'll ground this time? What? I say, do you think she'll ground this time? This is impossible. Absolutely impossible. What? Here, take my glasses. They're better than yours. All right. What is it you... I had to focus and then my breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus, but undulating. And on the masts and yards, the guys and all were hundreds, no thousands, no... I don't know, an endless number of enormous rats. See them? Yes, I see them. Now we know why she's derelict. Yes, now we know. What are you two doing? Here, give me a look. Yes, give him the glasses. Take a good look, chatterbox. Give you something to talk about. She's still heading for us. Yes. (sighs) She's going to turn. She better turn soon. (sighs) Suppose she doesn't. You mean suppose she piles up on the key? It's slow tide. Yes. Yes, it is. Where's all the conversation, August, huh? Here, want the glasses again? Want another look? No, no. She's still coming on. Go away! Go away! Turn! Will you turn, I say? I pray you turn! She's cracking up. The rats! Look! On the water! Like a carp! They're swimming. Sure, they're swimming. Those are ship's rats. But they're swimming for the rocks. The door below. It's open. Come on. Down we went, racing down the stone stairs, taking them three and four at a time. Scared? You bet we were scared. August, you get the windows. Maybe they can climb. We don't know. Reggie, but hurry, hurry. Look. See them? No. Oh, yes, I do. Up at the other end of the rock. Look at the millions. 
They smell us. Here they come. Close the door. Can't, can't. Here, let me. Oh, move, you move. Made it. Holy. That was close. One guy in. Look, there. Get him. He's as big as a tiger. And his eyes were wild and red, his teeth long and sharp and yellow. He went for us, hard and ravenous, and we fought him, fought that one rat all over the room. It was, oh, believe me, I do not exaggerate, it was like fighting a panther. Got him. We better get aloft. As we ran up the winding staircase, we passed the tiny windows of the various levels. And at every one was a thick, wriggling, screaming curtain of brown fur. I was ahead of Louie, and I dreaded each successive level. Suppose they had found a way in. Look at them. Will you look at them? It's a nightmare. Will you look at them? The air of the gallery was thick and fetid with the stink of them. The light was dim, brown, filtered through the crawling mass that swarmed over the glass all about us. I could not see the sky. Nothing, nothing but them. Their red eyes, their claws, their wriggling, hairy snouts, their teeth, the rats. They screamed and howled and threw themselves against the glass. They were starving. And we three, we stood very quietly. Oh, very, very quietly in the center of the classroom under our beautiful light. And we waited. What can we do? What can we do? Take it easy, old man. Take it easy. I can't. I just can't. It won't do any good to stand here and shake. Uh, that's right. Anybody want a cigarette? Yes. Yes, I'll have one. Thank you. Good boy. We've got to keep calm about this thing. Here's a light. <laughs> yeah, they don't like the fire, do they? <laughs> Guess not. Give me another match. <laughs> You don't like that much, do you, like? Don't rile them, August. Give me some more matches. I'll strike them and strike them and strike them until they get scared and go away. They won't go away. <laughs> Not until... Let me shoot you. Not until what? Not until they've been... fed. take just so much horror and then you get used to it. And they were interesting to watch, you know. They couldn't understand the glass. They could see us and they could rush at us, but that thin, invisible barrier held them off, stopped them. From time to time, we caught a glimpse of the rocks below. More rats down there, swarming brown velvet in the bright tropical sunlight. And then the tide began to rise. Only it had drowned some of them. Ships rats don't drown. <laughs> no, sir, you cannot drown one of them. They're all climbing up the tower. This bunch around us is getting thicker. Yeah. Say, what's the time? Quarter of six. You've got first watch, John. Right. Uh, wake me at ten. I will. Come along, August. It was getting dark. One side of the room was lit a soft, filtered red... Sunset through the rats. Oh, very pretty. I set the wicks, checked my fuel, and then lit the lamps. It caught them. 
Listen in their gigantic wriggling web of pale, hairless bellies, twitching red tails, bright eyes. Then I started the rotary motor. Life drove them mad as she swung slowly and smoothly about. She blinded them in the fierce, stabbing bar of light, moving continually about of a turning, of a touching, of a moving around and around. And they twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light. Bright light moving and behind on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back, but you cannot help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you could not see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. Relieved me at ten, but I didn't get much sleep that night. And when I came up into the gallery early next morning, there stood August, his back to me. He was bowing to the rats, waving his arms and making a speech. I am going to play once again that magnificent role which made me the toast of the Paris theater. Prelate, the evil genius of the medieval underworld. I am he who did guide the dark soul of the Marechal into the nether parts. <laughs> Do not be frightened, little children. I will not hurt turning. you. I much. stood staring at him, horror-struck, but he didn't notice me. The man had gone mad. He kept turning, telling his stories to all the rats, leaving no one out. August! August! Ah, another one. A latecomer. Take a seat on the aisle, dear patron. August, Move stop over it, there. Stop it. Let the gentleman be but seated. He didn't. Come, come. He went on, bowing and scraping to the rats, his big blue eyes rolling and winking, his wild red hair waving about him. I grabbed him by the arm. Looked at me like a child. Then his face screwed up. He looked as though he were about to cry. Go below, go on. Oh, very well then. Later, my dear audience, later. Matinee today. Sure, he was crazy. But I guess we all were. A few hours later, he came back up and caught Louie and me teasing the rats. Yes. Sounds horrible. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> We could get right up against the glass and make faces at them. It drove them crazy. They would scratch away trying to get at our eyes. Louie was even cuter about it. He'd pull a piece of bread out of his pocket and press it against the glass. The rats would scramble into a solid ball, biting each other, clustering like grapes. From time to time, a whole knot of them would slip and fall 110 feet to the surf below. Sharks. They're eating them. Yeah, the sharks are our friends. Yeah, yeah. I'll get another bunch together. <laughs> yeah, my beauty. That's it. Pilot. Kill each other. <laughs> there they go. Auguste joined in, too. Oh, very ingenious, Auguste. He learned that if he spread-eagled himself against the glass, they'd bunch and bundle against his figure. Then he'd leap back. Look! My portrait in rats. It went on all day. And then 
I was lying in bed. It was about midnight. I was very tired, and I was just beginning to fall off to sleep when I became conscious of a new sound. Couldn't figure it at first. I got up, lit the lamp, and went to the window. Even as I looked at it, I saw one of the panes begin to sag in. They had eaten the wood away. Louis, Louis, come quick. What? What is it? They found a way in. I held the glass with my hand. Now they were all going crazy, and assured of the success of this maneuver, were all nibbling away at the wood. Louis ran below and then returned with a large sheet of tin. We spread it against the window and hammered it into place. Even as we did so, we felt the heavy bodies cutting against the other side as the window gave way. That ought to hold. If it doesn't, we're done for. Rats can't eat tin. No, they can't. So what was that? I don't know. It came from below. The storeroom window. They're in. They're swarming up the stairs. Drop the trap. Right. Two of them got in. Let's go after them. We didn't go after them. They came at us. I leaped to one side and grabbed the marlin spike, swung and smashed one in midair. No! I whirled to see Louie with the other. It had ripped his hand open and the blood was pouring all over the place. He held his hand aloft and kicked at the snarling rat. I stepped and swung and got him. My hand! He got my hand! That's both of them, Louie. I'll, I'll get you something to tie that up. Blood! Look at it, my... I'm blood. I'm bleeding. Now, don't worry about it, Louie. Here, look. I'll wind this kerchief around it. It'll be okay. Blood. There, now. It's not bad. Just the flesh. Then I became conscious of another new sound. They were gnawing their way through the wooden trap door. I watched the wood fascinated. Even as I did, it began to give way. And a bristling, whiskery nose showed through... Louis, Louis, we've got to go up. Next level was the middle quarters in the kitchen. I slammed the trap door there, too. But it, too, was wood. Uh, my blood. What are we going to do? Hell no. We'll be through this one in a moment. The gallery. The trap door in the gallery is metal. Good. Come on. We made it. the trap door exhausted. While below us, the rats took over the entire tower. I could hear them howling and fighting over our food supply, our water, our leather. And all about us, the others screamed and glared in at us, swayed in a tangled mass, hypnotized by the ever-turning light. By morning, the air in the little room was horrible. Until now, we'd been getting air from the tower below. Now that was sealed off. And so was all our food and water. We lay exhausted, panting, waiting, waiting. The hours crawled on. I was almost dozing from fatigue when I saw a sight that brought me too fast. <laughs> Would you like to come in, my beauty? Would you? I hold the powers of life and death, and I can let you in, you know. August was standing <laughs> by the glass, and in one hand he held a wrench. He was tapping the glass gently, not quite hard enough to break it. I eased myself to my feet, and slowly, very slowly, tiptoed toward him. All I have to do is tap just a little harder. Oh, 
found a coil of wire in the toolkit, and I trussed him up. Fastened him to a stanchion in the center of the room. Louis was of no help. He lay on his side, looking at his bloody hand, weak and sick as a baby. So there I was, a lunatic and a coward for company, and all about watching our little drama, The Rats. The day dragged by. The supply boat wasn't due for another 12 days. I don't know what they could have done if they had come. We had only one way of summoning them, and that was to shoot off distress rockets, but the rockets were four floors below. And even if they'd been right there in the gallery, I couldn't have opened a window to fire them. That night, I tended the light, but its flame was devouring our oxygen. The following day, we lay, thirst-tormented, starving, waiting, waiting, and... The following night, I again tended the light, but the small supply of spare wicking we kept in the gallery had become exhausted, and quite suddenly, about midnight, the light went out. There's nothing I could do. Wicks were stored three levels below. Nothing I could do. Nothing. From time to time, I'd strike a match to see the clock... When I did, it lit up the million red eyes about us. All about us. Watching. Waiting. Below, it had grown quiet. They'd cleaned us out, and now they, too, were waiting. All waiting. And then, the rats, quite suddenly, were silent. And then I heard it. And then I saw the sky and the stars. The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out there on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat, showing a few lights, came softly and innocently at us. The light was out. They didn't know. I wanted to open the windows to call out to them, to warn them somehow, but... I was afraid. What if, what if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited. She grounded very softly on a reef not 200 yards from the quay. Grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet, was he a passenger or crewman off watch, didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off. I could have told them to save their fuel, but tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. That's all. That's the story. The sun came up and there wasn't a rat on the whole key. Every last one of that terrible army had left us, gone back to sea on their new ship. August, insane asylum, he never recovered. And Louis? They took him into Cayenne where he died of blood poisoning from his bite. Uh, 
Oh, yes. Well, that's the whole of it. And if you'll excuse me now, I must go set my traps. No, no mouse traps. No rats in this lighthouse, I should say not. Life in the lights isn't bad. But sometimes when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous, sure. Somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. Tonight we have presented Three Skeleton Key by George Tadeus, adapted for radio by James Poe and starring Vincent Price as Jean. Supporting Mr. Price were Harry Bartell as August and Jeff Corey as Louis. Sound effects on Three Skeleton Key, created by Cliff Thorsness and executed today by Mr. Thorsness, Gus Bays, and Jack Sixsmith, have been awarded the best of the year by Radio and Television Life magazine. Harry Essman was at the control panel and special music was arranged and conducted by Del Castillo. Next week... You are swimming for your life in the dangerous waters off the Florida Gulf Coast, about to be smashed by a launch carrying a vicious criminal who must kill you or die himself. And on shore 500 yards away, the police are waiting to arrest you for murder. And there can be no escape. Week, we escape with an exciting tale of temptation and death on the Gulf Coast of Florida as John and Gwen Bagney tell it in Danger at Matacumba. Goodbye then until the same time next week when once again we offer you Escape. A patch of weeds, a boxer's biography, and a mild lukewarm bath. They're all clues that lead the police of Jackson, Michigan to a killer in the gangbuster story on CBS this Saturday night. It's the case of the double push to be heard on most of these same CBS stations this Saturday night. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Stay tuned for Fibber McGee and Molly next on Theater of the Mind. Fibber, McGee, and Molly are next. How in the devil does McGee get stuck in a suit of armor? (laughs) Well, let's find out. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber, McGee, and Molly. The makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat present Marion and Jim Jordan as Fibber, McGee, and Molly with Bill Thompson, the King's Man, and Billy Mills Orchestra. The show opens with Crazy Rhythm.
play written, directed, and produced for the Woman's Club by Fibber McGee. It's entitled, When Knighthood Was the Stuff, or Who Wants to Rassle in the Castle. And the curtain has just risen on the third gripping act, where in a gleaming suit of armor, Sir Lancelot is seen talking to the fair Elaine. These two parts we see by the program are taken by Fibber McGee and Molly. Lancelot, do not be so distant. Come as closer to me, fair knight. Oh, sure. Uh, wouldst that thou didst not have to fight the black knight in yon tournament today? I fear me that some harm will perchance come to thou. Say not so. Or say not so, fair knight. Methinks I confess this black knight with one eye tied behind me. Verily, Elaine. He is a palooka. A pushover, forsooth. Ah, there speaketh me, old true Lancelot. Yea. Remember, I am banking on you, my fair knight. Ah, yes. Bank knight. <laughs> Dost thou not get it, Elaine? Thou said thee are banking on me, and I cometh back with a goodly quip. Ain't funny, Nick Lancelot. <laughs> Gad Zooks. I would fain have done better, did not these iron pants cramp at my style somewhat. Listen, my Lancelot. Someone approaches the drawbridge. Is that what that was? <laughs> Could it be the man who comes to our house when Papa's gone away? <laughs> Nay, fair maid. It is the Black Knight. And now I must go forth to do battle for thy hand. Hold it now, hold it. For should I fail, must thou perforce be given in marriage to the black knight. Ah, these are troublous times when a maid must wed against her will. Merlin the magician telleth me that he hath looked into the future unto the time when the shotgun will have supplanted the broadsword to this purpose. <laughs> Merlin, bah, a faker. A reader of tea leaves, forsooth. You said it. <laughs> he is always taking an orange pico into the future. <laughs> but I must go forth to bottle or battle, Elaine. <laughs> Aha! He cometh. It is Sir Throckmorton, the Black Knight of Gildersleeve. Four of them. Oh, Black Knight. Oh. It is I, Sir Lancelot, challenging thou to combat. Oh, yes. Good day, good night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hello, Elaine. Speakest not to the maid of Astolat, Black Knight, until thou hast bested thy opponent, Sir Lancelot, in mortal combat. Yea. Draw and defend thyself, Violet. The word is Violet, McGee. Huh? Oh, oh, yes. Draw and defend thyself, Violet. And may the best man win. Two arms, Knave. Two arms. Go to it, Lancelot, me bully boy. Try a left jab with thy broadsword. Ah. Verily, it sounded like a boiler factory. I fear me this flake like it's louder than yon armor. 
haven't heard Trish now give us leave. Remember, I'm supposed to win. All right, Bucky. We've got to make this look good, otherwise we'll... Oh! Cut that out, Bucky. You stuck me. Well, I couldn't help it. You're so darn clumsy. Is that so? Well, let me tell you... Oh! You stop that stuff, McGee, or I'll bang your iron pajamas into a wad of tinfoil. <laughs> All right, you bangy, but don't give me any more of your lip. <laughs> Heavenly night, or day. Look at him go, will you? Now, look here, Lancelot. I've had about enough of this. combat, Elaine. Wilt marry me? I wilt indeed, brave Lancelot. Ah, do I wilt. <laughs> what, fair maid? Thou seemest sad. Thy eyes are drooping. What botherest thou? Tell me, Lancelot, hath America yet been discovered? Nay, not until eight centuries hence. Well, then how canst thou take thy bride to Niagara Falls? <laughs> Glad that's over. How'd it go, Molly? Well, I think it was wonderful, dearie. It's the best play you ever wrote, I believe. Oh, Miss McGee, oh, what a wonderful performance, really. You were simply marvelous. And you, Miss McGee, you were simply perfect for the part. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Uppington. Do you really think so? Oh, I do indeed. The minute I saw you come out on the stage in that costume, I said to myself, how delightfully she portrays a girl of the Middle Ages. Excuse me, girls. Lay aside my sword and get sorted, Mrs. Uppington. How about the gate receipt? How's it come out financially? Oh, splendidly, Mr. McGee. Fine. You know, before we started, the club had a $300 deficit. Now, how's the deficit? Oh, now it's $950. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Oh. The biggest deficit we ever had. Wonderful. Oh, my, I'm so thrilled, really. <laughs> well, how was the audience reaction, Uppy? Good? Oh, now, I was extremely disturbed about that for a time during the second day. Why, Mrs. Uppington? Well, the steam radiators were hissing so loudly. And when I ran down to turn them off, there were no radiators. <laughs> You overplayed your part a little when you slapped Mr. Gildersleeve down with your sword. <laughs> that was quite a wallop I gave the old boy, wasn't it? I bet he thought he was playing with Olsen and Johnson and Helmet to Poppin'. Oh. <laughs> oh, 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 here he comes. Oh, look here, McGee. <laughs> oh, hello, Mr. Gildersleeve. My, you were wonderful as the Black Knight. So realistic, really. I'll tell you where, Gildersleeve. I think you've got definite talent. 
In fact, I, I think you'd make a great character actor if you only had a little more character <laughs> and could act. Is that so? <laughs> well, what was the idea of knocking me cold in the last act? That baseball bat wasn't in the script, McGee. <laughs> well, that was just sudden inspiration, Gilkey. <laughs> Did you see that dent in his helmet, Molly? I that was the biggest see. depression I've seen since 1929. <laughs> That's enough from you, McGee. Oh, yeah. Take off that armor and meet me man to man. I'll... I'll blitzkrieg you! Oh, here, now, Mr. Gildersleeve. That's okay, Molly. That's the way the little boy wants it. Beat it now, Gildersleeve, and I'll meet you outside in five minutes. Oh, no, you won't. I'm going to wait right here for you. Oh, dear. Why do you two always have to be fighting? Why why don't you patch things up, McGee? When I get through with this guy, I won't even be able to patch him up. Why, I'll... I'll... Let me at him. Let me at him. Hey, where's the dingus that unhooks this armor? Here, McGee, let me help you. Don't you dare touch me. Don't <laughs> you dare touch me. Not while I'm in this condition. I'll get out of this my own way. How'd I ever get into this thing? Can't you remember, dear? Oh, I was so busy rehearsing my life. Oh. Maybe this is the way. Oh, Don't come off that way. Quit stalling, you little weasel. You quit rushing me, you big nasty, nasty, nasty sturchum. Oh. Now, let me see. Oh. Where was that? Where you poor lad. Oh. Is there anything your Molly can do for you, dearie? I guess not. Let me try once more. Take the helmet off first, why don't you? Oh, yeah? Why don't I? How do you get it off? Well, mine wasn't even fastened. Maybe yours screws off like a diver's helmet. Here, let me show you. Hey! Oh, get out! You're twisting my head around. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think I am, a puppet? The word is puppet, dearie. Huh? Well, whatever it is, I ain't one of them. I'd better let me think a minute. How can I get this dead rather thing off? Oh, McGee, what are you going to do? Stand here all evening like a can of tomatoes? <laughs> There's only one thing to do, Molly. i got to find a blacksmith. You come with me, Molly, and hold this sword over my head. What on earth for? There's a thunderstorm coming up, and in this outfit I need a lightning rod. Oh. <laughs> I want to. This is a free country. 
Oh, yeah. Well, let me tell you, Gildersleeve. All right, all right. Drink it up there. And you, where's your license? <laughs> license for what, officer? For holding a procession inside the city limits. Come on now, dig down into that chromium cutaway and show me your license. Dad <laughs> Ratter, we ain't holding a parade. This is a theatrical costume. Well, why don't you leave your costume in your dressing room, you, you show-off? Quit acting like a kid, you scut. Now be on your way or I'll throw you in the car. Oh, yeah? What do you think I am now? <laughs> Come on, Molly. Well, hello there, Molly. Who's your friend in the galvanized gabardine? Uh, it's Fibber, Mr. Wilcox. We're looking for a blacksmith shop so we can get him out of it. Yeah, otherwise I'm going to be a knight the rest of my days, Harlow. <laughs> well, that's a... <laughs> That's a tough spot you're in, pal. Ah, but those knights of the round table had the right idea at that. How so, Miss Wilcox? Well, they knew that there was nothing like a hard, smooth outer layer of protection. Uh Uh-oh. We will now hear from that polished nobleman, Sir Cassian Walnut. (laughs) (laughs) Well, gee, it's true. Johnson's Wax gives floors and furniture a suit of armor that gives them positive protection in the battle against dirt and dust and wear and scratches. Uh, Tell me, Mr. Wilcox. Uh, Did King Arthur use Johnson's Wax on the round table? Why, he must have, Molly. Johnson's Wax is good for round tables, square tables, coffee tables, card tables, ping-pong tables, kitchen tables, hall tables, night tables, dining tables. Oh, get to the end, Wilcox. Okay, and end tables. Uh... Ain't he marvelous, folks? You couldn't dampen that guy's enthusiasm with a fire hose. You sure you don't know where there's a blacksmith shop, Harlow? No, I don't, Fibber. But wait till you read what the newspapers say about that play of yours. Oh. Well, what's that got to do with his getting out of that suit of armor? Plenty. <laughs> He'll feel so small he can crawl out through the visor. <laughs> well, good luck, pal. <laughs> McGee. Huh? Mr. Gildersleeve is still following us. He is. Chuck, if he's got a grudge, why don't he come up to me and fight it out like a man? Oh, now be careful, McGee. Remember, it's his great big bare fist against you and that poor little suit of iron armor. Don't take any chances. Oh, oh there, my dear. Who's your friend in the noisy knickers? <laughs> it's me husband, Mr. Boomer. We're looking for a blacksmith to get him out of the armor. Maybe you're the guy we're looking for, Boomer. As Mr. Roosevelt says to Mrs. Farley, how about the loan of your Jimmy for a while? Uh... <laughs> That's very good, Rattle Rompers. Very good. <laughs> I've got exactly the thing for you. You have? Certainly have. Little invention of my own, the little gem can cutter and oyster opener. Guaranteed to open any Pullman window with one smart blow of the glass. Hey, that don't sound bad. Do you think it'll work on me? Why, sleeve garters, one twist of the little gem and you'll come out of that sardine sarcophagus quicker than a rabbit can... Well, quicker than a rabbit can. <laughs> well, come on, try it out, Mr. Boomer. Try it out. This time you've made a sale, I yes. All right, my dear. I have a little gem a can opener right here someplace. Now, what did I do with that little gem? Let me see. Here's a sprig of mint leaves. In case I should encounter a leg of lamb. <laughs> little pop gun I used to pop off my top. Here's a small object no larger than a man's hand. In fact, that's just what it is. 
looks mighty familiar, too. Well, well, it's mine. But what was it doing in my pocket? <laughs> Here's a letter that uh, Louis the Lifer asked me to deliver to the governor. Says here, I've been in here for 30 years, and again, Roosevelt and Taft and Dewey are going to run for president. I'd like to get out now, if you'll pardon me. This is where I came in. <laughs> And a check for a small portion of Pilchner. <laughs> well, well, imagine that. No little gem can opener. Come to think of it, you've done me a good turn, Powell Fly. What you mean? I'm going right home and invent the little gem right now. Good day, my dear, and so long to you, demountable drawers. <laughs> Men sing, we play hook. We play hooks. Oh, all the day we run and play, we race and run and roll our hooks along. My name they call Louise. Oui, oui. I am the sweetheart of Marie. We live in Gay Paris. Oui, oui. We're very bourgeoisie. She, Marie, and me, Louise. We nice folks, but folks screw it. Every day we run and run to bring the teacher present. Ooh la la, we very smart and also very pleasant. Just think of the man who ate the first lobster, dearie. 
I still don't see any blacksmith shops, Molly. <laughs> what are horses wearing nowadays, anyway? Bedroom slippers? Ah, <laughs> uh, you poor lad. You must be simply worn out dragging around in that pile of scrap iron. We're right near our house. Why don't you go home and lie down a while? Hey, that's not a bad idea, Molly. After I get a rest, maybe I can remember how... Well, hello there, daughter. Who's the rummy in the rivet? <laughs> well, this is Mr. McGee, Mr. Oldtimer. Cheers, eh? How'd you ever get in there, Johnny? <laughs> Just overdid my diet, old-timer. Didn't have enough iron in my system, and now I got too much system in my iron. <laughs> That's pretty good. I don't get it. Well, he had to wear this costume in a stage play, Mr. Oldtimer. He was very much on his metal, and uh, vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> Now, that's pretty good, daughter. But that ain't the way I heard it. Oh, dear. The way I heard it, one feller says, tell the feller, say, he says, it won't be long now till all them political candidates start calling each other names over the radio. They were smart, they'd all take a tip from this program and use Johnson's wax and all their platforms. What you mean, says, tell the feller. Well, says the first feller, you know what Wilcox says. Dirt can't cling to a Johnson wax surface. <laughs> well, it's commercial, but it's cute. <laughs> hey, Johnny. Yeah? You gonna be wearing that suit of heavy overwear all day? <laughs> Well, it looks like you'd have to, Mr. Oldtimer. Why? Well, I'm going to make some fudge tonight, and I'll give him 50 cents to come over and roll on the walnut. <laughs> you think it over, Johnny. So long, daughter. <laughs> that old twerp. He's got more silly notions than a five and ten cent store. <laughs> Boy, am I tired. All day. We're almost home, dearie, and I'll make you a nice cup of tea. And then I'll look in the classified directory for somebody to get you out of that thing. <laughs> Might be a good idea to start looking under filing systems. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't know how I'm... Hi, mister. Oh, hello there, little girl. Hey, I seen you at our play tonight. How'd you like it? Well, I attended the play in my professional capacity of it. <laughs> what you mean? Well... I'm the dramatic editor of our kindergarten paper, and I have to see all the plays. Good, bad, and no difference. Well, professionally then, sis, what'd you think of the underlying premise of our production? The underlying premise? Huh? What'd you think of the show? Oh, well, I have always thought that the days of knighthood was a very romantic period. Oh, yeah, well, what'd you think of my performance? Well, I thought you were very unromantic, period. Don't you think I was pretty impressive in this suit of armor? <laughs> Gee, that's funny. <laughs> that's just what Willie Poops asked me. Oh, he did, eh? Mm -hmm. He asked you uh, what you thought of me in my armor, eh? Sure. And what did you say? <laughs> oh, come on, say I can take it. <laughs> Flattery don't turn my head. <laughs> What'd you tell Willie Toops about me and my armor? Do I have to? Sure. Well, I, I said, confidential.
silly Willie. Yeah. He planked. <laughs> You know, Molly, I still think she's a midget. <laughs> well, thank goodness for Bob Hall. Ah, there, McGee. Oh, dear. I've been waiting for you. Oh, my. Oh. So you haven't got that armor off yet, eh? That's a pretty acute observation, Gildersleeve. Out of my way before I flatten your arches with these iron oxfords. You're a hard man, McGee. <laughs> Wait till you climb out of that chafing dish. You'll be sorry. Is that so? Yes, that's so. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Say, uh, who writes that snappy dialogue for you boys? <laughs> Is it Noel Coward? Why should I waste any brilliant epigrams on this lowbrow? Well, Come on, Molly, let's... Hey, go. wait a minute. Wait. Quick. Lock the door. It's locked. Now, let me see. I dig a little, little gadget on the shoulder here. Unhook the front. Slide the helmet back. What? Oh. All off. Click the whistle. Boy, is that a relief. Give me the evening paper, Molly. Here. And here's your specs, dearie. But say, look here, McGee. Hmm? If you could take that armor off so easily, why didn't you do it at the theater? What? And get my block knocked off? <laughs> Got my glasses on now. Good night, Black Knight. Folks, next Sunday is not only dedicated to mothers, it is also National Hospital Day, in honor of the birthday of Florence Nightingale, the founder of modern nursing. Yes, so may we suggest you pay a visit to your hospital and uh, get acquainted with your most helpful neighbor. Don't forget... It's the men and women in white we turn to when everything looks black. Good night. Good night, all. Thank you very much for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Gunsmoke, followed by Life with Luigi. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.